0: Open your Bibles to James chapter 4, and we come back to a passage, as I said last week, which unfortunately needs no introduction. Just because its theme is something that is so familiar to us, it's a theme of conflict, it's a theme of quarrels and fighting, bitterness and anxiety. It is something that uh, some of you hopefully take courage by way of reminder of some of the principles that are spelled out here, but there are others of you, it's hopefully a ray of hope once you have been deep into the dark forest of conflict for so long, there has been so much fighting, so much Animosity and so much bitterness, so much distance and coldness between you and and someone who you thought was a friend, someone who you thought was uh, someone who loved you, someone who you thought you were close to, and now you have fallen out with them, and you have gotten so far into it and so deep you've wondered if there's ever any way out except for just to jettison the relationship altogether. Hopefully, as we have been spending time in this passage, it has been a ray of hope to let you understand that there is a roadmap. There is a pathway out of your conflict. James has been building it for us piece by piece, kind of helping us understand step by step how conflict happens. He's been giving us a little bit of a, an anatomy of a conflict, you might say. He's been giving us uh, the, 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 the building blocks of how it all comes about and, and what the first steps were. And as we talk about these things, hopefully it comes to you with a level of clarity so that you can begin to think back uh, subsequent or, or previously in each uh, sequential step of how you got to where you are. There was a starting point. There was something that initiated it, although it may not be what you have been focusing on for the last little while. As we talked about last week, this is a section that goes all the way back to verse 1 in chapter 3 when James started to talk to us about the tongue. And he talked to us about about how we use our tongue to hurt people and curse people at one point we would be praising God in the church at another point we'll turn around and we will be running down and criticizing and vilifying someone else and he put particular focus at the end of that chapter on the sources of wisdom that people claim as they are engaging in these kinds of bitter conflicts one side you have you have the, the, the wisdom from heaven, which he says is pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, creating an environment of peace. But on the other hand, you have a source which is creating bitterness and jealousy, uh, selfish ambition, critical attitudes, which he says is from below. It's from from uh, the earth, or he actually says it's earthly or natural or Or demonic. Both sides, in other words, both sides would proclaim themselves to be following wisdom, but only one side has the evidence, he says. That carries over very naturally then into chapter 4 that we've been looking at, really extends all the way down to verse 12 as James is now moving beyond just the tongue and the source of wisdom to the manifestation that all this takes in our lives in terms of quarrels and fights. And he asked the question in verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Just like he did back in chapter 3 verse 13 when he asked who is wise among you, he he begins with a question. He tries to arrest your attention to get you to stop And ask this basic question. It's a question that very few people stop and ask when they're in the middle of chaos and middle of the confusion of all the fighting and the quarreling. Very few people stop in the middle of it and just ask this basic question. What exactly causes quarrels? What causes fights? Well, James is answering that question. And the answer he gives is probably not the answer that you would give or not the answer you would expect. As James outlines for us here in the first six verses of this chapter, five factors that contribute to conflict in our lives. Not the typical factors that people normally look at. They're not what most people diagnose as the cause of the conflict, because they almost inevitably point to something exterior to themselves, something outside of themselves. But what James tells us is something very different. And it comes with, of course, divine authority, and it comes with a certain uh, amount of profundity, but it equips us tremendously to know how exactly to respond when we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict, how to understand it. You can't prevent all conflicts. Jesus himself couldn't prevent all conflicts. He couldn't prevent people who were upset with him and angry with him. But what James is really talking about is having self-control. What he's really talking about is, is your contribution to whatever the conflict may or may not be. Now the first of these factors, the first and most basic factor that he outlined for us was in verse 1. And he says, what causes these quarrels and fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So it's not your circumstances primarily, it's not that some outer uh, individual, not some other person, it's not something outside of you, it is something inside of you. It is your desires, or some translations say your lust, your selfish pursuit of pleasures. As we said, it's, it's basically the word hedonism, your exaltation of some pleasure as now the chief objective of your life and your focus something that you simply care about, whether it's your, 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 your comfort, whether it is a possession, whether it's an achievement, whether it's a reputation, whatever it is, that has now become so exalted in your life that you are willing to go to blows or at least willing to go to words, a war of words over it. At some point, your own satisfaction, your own pleasure becomes your chief purpose and it erupts against anyone who stands in the way that kind of leads to the second factor that contributes to this which is the attack against others as the problem so it begins with this desire it leads to this attack as james says in verse 2 you desire and do not have so you murder or we might say you adopt the same destructive attitudes that fuels murder just like jesus of course taught in matthew 5:21 You've heard that it's said of old, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is guilty of judgment or liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable of judgment. Anyone who insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, is liable of hellfire. So this is the outcome. It has the same kind of destructive uh, seeds as murder, but it might result in just criticisms or insults or attacks, whatever it might be, but the origin is all the same. It's all the same. I really like the way uh, I read this a number of years ago. Ken Sandy, who in his Peacemaker book uh, takes focus on this passage, and I really like the way he summarizes it in terms of its progression. He says basically, the conflicts follow this pathway. It begins with, I desire. I desire. And then some person persistently fails to satisfy your desire, and you begin to dwell on the disappointment. You begin to allow it to, to well up in your heart. Your desire and your disappointment take control of your life. It gives way to bitterness or to self-pity or to whatever it might be. And at that point, it moves From I desire to I demand. The desire may or may not be good. The desire might be something that's uh, totally fine. But when it moves from I desire to I demand, it has taken a place in your heart that only God deserves. A place where you believe... That you must have this now in order to have joy and happiness and contentment and usefulness or whatever it might be. All of those things which God is the one who supplies. So... You dwell now or you become uh, convinced that you can't be happy or can't be fulfilled. Ken Sandy says, when you see something as being essential to your fulfillment or well-being, it moves from a desire to a demand. I wish I could have this evolves to I must have this. And then he says, it moves then from I demand to I judge. Again, Sandy says our, our expectations and our desires quote, become conditions and standards that we use to judge others. Instead of giving people room for independence, disagreement, or failure, we rigidly impose our expectations on them. In effect, we expect them to give allegiance to the idols we have established in our hearts. And when they refuse to do so, we condemn them in our hearts and with our words, and our conflict with them takes on a heightened intensity End quote. So here you begin with "I desire," it moves to "I demand," and then it moves to "I judge." Now you become the object of someone's condemnation, because you aren't worshiping at the same altar to which they're worshiping. You aren't aren't bowing down to what they believe is going to give them their ultimate fulfillment. And you, therefore, are unworthy. And then finally, Sandy says, it moves from I judge to I punish. When someone fails to satisfy your expectations or bow down to your demands, we find ways to hurt, ways to punish, ways to destroy until until they give in to our desires. That's basically what James is spelling out here. That's basically what he's spelling out. Now, one of the keys really to understanding this, I think, is right here in verse 2, when James moves from saying simply, you do not have, so you murder, and then he qualifies or expands or, 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 or explains that you covet and cannot obtain you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel so now he's really getting into the real spiritual issue which is coveting it's we know what coveting is it's sort of that inordinate desire for something uh, maybe that you don't have but particularly something that that you don't have and someone else has Covetousness is defined as the inordinate or wrongful desire especially for something that belongs to someone else. That is what you would find in the dictionary form. But let me give you a biblical definition. It comes straight out of Scripture over in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul's talking to Christians here about how to grow in our faith. And he says to them in verse 5, Put to death... Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. This is really the biblical definition. So for Paul and for, I think, the, the balance of Scripture, coveting is idolatry. That is to say, it is framing whatever it is that you so deeply desire to such a high extent that in your mind it becomes necessary for your contentment, necessary for your happiness, necessary for your success, necessary for your security, Necessary for your justification, your reputation, whatever it might be. Martin Luther says, To whatever we look for any good thing and for refuge in every need, that is what is meant by God. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in Him from the heart. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God." End quote. So James is talking about coveting here. That's what he's saying. You have have begun to give way in your heart to something that you must have. It's it's a possession, it's a quality, it's a it's a maybe even sometimes a person, a relationship, a schedule a recognition, an achievement, an award, a job, whatever it might be. And James says you begin to covet that. And what really is taking place is this is the thing now to which you are placing or transferring all of your trust. And he's highlighting the fact that your inordinate desire now for whatever it is that you're wanting is really just exposing your lack of trust in the Lord. It's exposing your lack of trust in the Lord. An inordinate desire for whatever you're wanting, really demonstrating that you are no longer looking to God as your all-sufficient provider, sustainer, defender, whatever it might be. Or to frame it in the words of James 1, your fighting and quarreling is because you're not getting your way or getting what you want and really exposing that you lack the trust in God to take care of that want listen to proverbs 28:25 it's a profound verse proverbs 28:25 a greedy man stirs up strife that's exactly what james is saying a greedy man stirs up strife but then he goes on there in Proverbs twenty eight twenty five. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord. You hear the contrast there? A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched or supplied. You could translate it that way. God will meet your needs. God will take care of whatever it is that you might think fuels or needs to be fueled by your greed or whatever it is. So the issue, in other words, is not just that you want something. The issue is that you're failing to trust God to give it to you. You're not believing that He can meet the need, that He can answer or deal with your situation. You don't believe that He can work all of these things out. Which leads really to the third factor that James lists here that contributes to conflict, which is just simply the absence of asking. The absence of asking. That's what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. So you have basically given yourself over to a worldview where the things that you're desiring or the things that you're seeking are, are now almost completely up to your own scheming. They're up to your own machinations. They're up to your own devices or your own efforts or your own uh, strategies they're up to you, in other words. All of your conspiring, all of your attacking, or whatever it is, is basically a reflection that you've forgotten the basic truth of God's sovereignty. You've forgotten what James has already told us in, in chapter 1, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow or, sh- or, or shifting, no changing. And so you've neglected to entrust matters into God's hands. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to the very next chapter. The very next chapter in James. Excuse me, Peter. 1 Peter. When, When Peter is basically telling us the same thing, and he's framing it in the context of servants, But it really extends to everyone. In fact, if you read through the book, you'll see he applies these truths to all kinds of different people. But I want to draw your attention to chapter 2 where he focuses in on servants and particularly those who are who are dealing with injustices. They're dealing with people who they would say have treated them wrongly, have treated them unfairly. He says, servants, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure it, it is a gracious thing inside of God. So here he's talking about the person who not is being beaten because they have sinned in some way he says that's just that's just the law of reaping and sowing but if you are are truly innocent if you truly think that you've done nothing wrong and you're suffering for it be mindful of God he says and he says in verse 21 for this to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps his steps he committed no sin so he was unjustly beaten and accused. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And that's it, folks. I mean, it's so profoundly simple, right? You have a correct view of God in the midst of whatever it is that you think you, you might be deserving of or needful of or what of. You have a correct view of God and then you continually entrust yourself to Him. There's no need for you to revile in return. There's no need for you to attack in return. There's no need for you to, to go to blows. There's no need for any of that. But James here is outlining the fact that You, if you are fighting and quarreling, you have neglected to entrust matters into the hands of God and instead you have concluded that you have to take these matters into your own hand. You adopt what is essentially the wisdom that is from below, that which is earthly and natural and demonic. And you go on the attack. Now James, of course, uh, we have already seen this. Has many of the same truths that you will find in the Sermon on the Mount. And he no doubt is drawing here, even on the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 7 Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now it's interesting, just in the flow of Matthew 7, Those verses appearing in verse 7 come right after, obviously, the first six verses, which are all about what? Judgment, cursing, condemnation. Judge not, lest you be judged, he says, says in Matthew 7, 1. For with the measure with which you measure others, you'll be measured. With the standard with which you judge others, you'll be judged, he says. So so in, in light or in the context of this sort of judgmental and critical and sort of uh, 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 condemning spiritual attitude, in the midst of all that, he comes right on the heels and he says, ask, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open to them. Or of which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or, 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 or if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good, give good gifts to those who ask of him? So he's basically saying you can trust God. You can trust God. As James says, you find yourself in the midst of a trial. You find yourself in the midst of a difficulty back in chapter 1. If you, lack, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. God will give. He's generous. He's generous. So here's James teaching the same thing that Peter is teaching. The same thing that Jesus is teaching. Your quarrels, your fighting, your animosity is nothing but a bare reflection of your lack of trust in the sovereignty of God. Now this is also very similar to the kind of counsel that Paul gives to women in Philippi who were also in the midst of a fight. In fact, it was a notorious fight. It wasn't something that had just erupted in the church and a few people knew about it, this had become notorious. In fact, this was such a squabble and such a fight that word of it had leaked beyond the walls of the church to the extent that people outside of the church and now even Paul had become aware of this massive conflict that had erupted at Philippi between these two women. And in Philippians 4.2, he says, I entreat... Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So he brings up their situation, he names them by name, and he calls on the church to help these two women in the midst of their, their conflict, help them to get along. And his basic counsel to them is the same as what we heard from James or Peter or from Jesus. He says in Philippians 4, 5, let your reasonableness Be known to everyone. So where where have we heard that? We heard that in terms of the, the wisdom that comes down from above. The wisdom that is open to reason. Open to discussion. Open to dialogue. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And do not be anxious for anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made made known to God. So, So here, he basically tells them, in the same way that James is telling them, you need to adjust your view of God. He is not remote from your situation, He's not removed from your situation. In fact, Paul says, The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And consequently, he is able to act, he's able to do something about your situation, he sees it, he knows it, he understands it intricately, he knows the justices and the injustices, the rights and the wrongs. And Paul doesn't even try to figure out which one of these women may be right or wrong. He's in prison in another city, in another country, in fact. He's too far away to get into the situation and to find out the details. But it really doesn't matter. He can tell them to stop their fighting and just simply trust that God is near, that God is at hand. Let your view of God, in other words, control your view of the conflict. Don't just declare your theology in a sermon, live it out in the struggles where you are living, he says. Trust that God is able to do something about your situation and so let your request be made known to God. You have not because you ask not. Paul's telling these women you have a lack of confidence in God and it has led to anxiety, it has led to animosity, it has led to you being at war with one another. So lay down your weapons and just believe for a minute that God is able, that He's the ultimate equalizer. If you have confident trust in the Lord and confident trust that He is near, why are you so worked up? It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what people say to you. It doesn't matter how you're treated. It doesn't matter whether you are being treated fairly or unfairly. It doesn't matter if you've been passed over. It doesn't matter if your reputation is even being maligned. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you're not getting what you thought you should get or what you thought you deserved. It doesn't matter if you're struggling. It doesn't matter if you are poor or enfeebled in some way. None of that stuff is missed by God. And He is able to deal with your situation. So you have not because you ask not. When you're in the midst of turmoil and the midst of conflict, in the midst of chaos and disruption and all of that stuff, rather than turning your focus and your gaze outside to all the things that you're going to do to make all this stuff right, turn your gaze to heaven. You have a deficient view of God and it needs to be corrected. Or alternatively, James says... Also in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions or on your desires. So maybe you have asked, maybe you have prayed, you just didn't like the answer. Your request, in other words are no more motivated by the sovereignty of God than your attacks on other people. In other words, you're not praying, saying, Lord, your will be done. You're not yielding to God and saying, God, just do with me as you want Mold me, shape me into the person of Christ through this situation. You're not praying in that way. Your prayers are as motivated by the same self centeredness as your quarrels and fights. It's a different action, but it's the same problem. A different manifestation, but the same motive. Your selfish, self centered ambitions, which are causing you to quarrel and fight, are the same selfish, self centered ambitions. That are causing you to ask God wrongly. But all of it. Listen to this. All of it driven by the same issue. A dissatisfaction with God. It is a dissatisfaction with God. He is not enough. His grace is not enough. His goodness is not enough for you. You have convinced yourself that you must have God plus whatever it is you set your desires on, God plus whatever this uh, idol is that you've set up in your heart, you have set your sights on that and now God is not enough. And so you must have this in addition. So whether you're fighting or whether you are praying, the underlying focus is a deficient view of God's love. Or to put it another way, your underlying issue is an exaggerated love for the world and the things of the world. As if they're the solution to your problem. Which leads to James' fourth factor contributing to conflict, which is an adulterous attitude toward the world. So you have this aim of selfish desires an attack against others an absence of asking and now adulterous attitudes. Adulterous attitudes. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So now he's... James is is chasing the same issue, but from a different direction. He's taken on the desire and the demand and framed it now in the language of spiritual adultery. And because he's writing to Jews, they would have well understood what he's talking about because they would have been familiar with the Old Testament, which over and over and over again talked about Israel being in spiritual adultery. We know what adultery is. That is sexual sin uh, from a married person with someone who's not their, their spouse or sexual sin and unfaithfulness. You stood before others. You made vows. You made promises. You made commitments. You asked for accountability. And then you turn around and you break those commitments when you engage in sexual activity with someone other than your spouse. That's adultery. But when God took Israel as His special people he called them his bride he called them his wife by covenant and he established a covenant with them there was an exchanging of vows in the mosaic covenant they entered into a relationship of commitment and faithfulness to one another but then israel repeatedly broke the commitment they broke the commitment by going after other gods Going after other gods, bowing down to other gods, believing that these gods were the ones that were going to deliver them and give them security and give them victory or give them prominence or whatever it might be. And so when James comes along and he uses this language, you adulterous people, Jews would have immediately understood what he's talking about. He's telling them they have idols. They have idols. They are discontent with God. They are discontent with where God has them. And they have set their hearts and their minds and their hope on something other than Him. And they're willing to dishonor God in order to get it. Now James further defines this as friendship with the world. you adulterous people. Do you not understand... This friendship, this desire, and this affinity that you are now showing for something other than God, this affinity for the world, do you not understand that that is making you an enemy of God? You, 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 you thought that the enemy was the other person. You thought that the enemy was the person you're fighting and quarreling, attacking and criticizing. You thought that was the enemy and now he's saying that's not your real problem. Your real problem is that you've started down a pathway where God is your enemy. You've made a love of the world the source of your hope. Remember the words of John over in 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world the love of the Father isn't in him. You can't have both. You can't love the world and love God. You can't love the things of the world and love God. If the love of the world is in your heart the love of the Father is not. For all that's in the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away, and all along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John here is talking about the same things that James is talking about. He's talking about this world, which is the word cosmos. It's basically a word for order. We, we recognize it in terms of this, the planets and the stars which rotate or which orbit around in their various orders. We know it in the sense of cosmetics when we put on makeup and we sort of put our face in order. But basically, it talks about an order or a structure. So if you love the world, he's not just talking about the possessions. He's talking about the entire structure, the entire order, the entire system of the world. It's fine to appreciate the world, God loves the world, we're told in Scripture. In fact, even the material world, God created the world, the flowers and the mountains and the trees, all that stuff, and He declared that it was good. And there's nothing wrong with loving the environment that God has placed you in and loving the things which He so generously gives us to, to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of appreciations. But what He's talking about here isn't just the material things. He's talking about the materialism, the trust in those things, the belief that you must have those things in order to be happy, or the belief that you must abide by its systems and its values and its ways, that they're ultimately going to be your salvation, and they're going to be your deliverance, and they're going to give you the pathway to contentment that is what they're talking about the world first john 5:19 gives it a further definition we know that we are from god and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one this is what he's talking about when he says don't love the world this is what James is talking about whenever he talks about the love of the world. He's talking about all of that stuff, which whether you recognize it or think about it or ponder it or not, it has its source in the evil one. The values of the world, the vanity of the world, the pride of the world, the self-sufficiency of the world, the materialism of the world, or as James, or excuse me, as John defined it, the lust. The desires of the flesh, I should say, the desires of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. This is the cosmos. And it's earthly, and it's natural, and it's demonic. And so when you cozy up to this, when you make this your object of admiration, when you make yourself a friend of the world and its system and its ways and its things, James says you are now an enemy of God. You are now walking by its selfish ambition. You are now walking by its bitterness and jealousy. You have adopted its wisdom. And when that happens, all of that stuff comes out against others. And guess what? it eventually comes out against God. It eventually comes out against God. So you're bitter against someone else for not giving you what God is ultimately the source of. You're bitter against someone else for not acknowledging or, or, or helping you along the way to your uh, achievement or giving you a job or giving you a raise or whatever it might be. When God is ultimately the source of all those things. And guess what happens when you don't get those things. Not only are you fighting and quarreling against someone else. But eventually because you never are satisfied. Because the only source of satisfaction is God. You eventually become bitter against God. He's already your enemy. You're just still pretending. You're just pretending. You're asking but you're asking amiss. Because what's really driving your asks is not a love of God, it's a love of yourself. You're a friend of the world. And James confirms all of this with Scripture, verse 5. Do you suppose it says to no purpose that the, excuse me, it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Now we don't have time to unfold this, but let me just summarize it for you because that's basically what James is doing. You're not going to find that particular verse anywhere in the Old Testament. You can look high and wide, you won't find it. When James says the scripture says, he's not quoting a particular passage of scripture. What he's doing is he's summarizing the totality of Scripture. Everything that you read in the Old Testament would drive you to this same point, And it is abundantly obvious. It's not hard to find. God is a jealous God. God does not go lightly whenever He sees you making friends with the world. He doesn't just overlook this. Any more than a husband is going to just overlook or a wife is just going to overlook when she sees or he sees their spouse cozying up to someone who's not their marriage partner. God is jealous over the Spirit He's made to dwell in us. Not the Holy Spirit, but just probably talking about the the inner person, our inner Spirit, our heart, we might say. God is jealous for your heart. He desires you to love Him, not half-heartedly. He wants you to love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this is one of the causes of conflicts. You love God too little. You're discontent with where God has you. You're discontent with what God has given you. You love the world and its ways too much. You're too impressed with its values. You're too impressed with its glory. And you're too impressed with its ends. You have allowed it, that is the world, to define the desires of your heart which then become demands, which then become judgments against everyone who doesn't meet your demands, and then becomes attacks. But the solution is pretty simple. James gives it to us as he highlights a fifth factor contributing to conflict, which is in verse 6, and that is arrogant self-reliance. He tells us, in spite of all of this, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. He resists the friend of the world. He resists the one who adopts the wisdom of the world. The word pride here, by the way, huperaphanos is the word. Huperaphanos. Basically, it takes the word "hooper," which is the word over, and the word phanos, which is the word to manifest or to show. And it talks about the person who wants to show themselves over everyone else. They want to demonstrate themselves over everyone else. The one who thinks that they're above everyone else, who thinks that they ought to be exalted above everyone else. They are exalted in their own mind. They're focused on their own opinions, on their own agenda, on their own ends, on their own thoughts. They claim to love God. They might even still be praying to God. But in their actions, even in their prayers, they're focused on themselves. Their internal desires have become demands. They've laid those demands on everyone around them. They haven't even met, and so they've become critical. And the real issue is their inner pride. But James says God resists that. God resists you. He resists your goals. He resists your self-sufficiency. He resists your friendship with the world. He resists your attacks. He resists your criticisms. He resists all that. He sets Himself against you. Instead of trusting God, you've turned to the wisdom from below. You've put your trust in your own schemes and your own self the things of this world you have an attitude of self-sufficiency which is at enmity with God and in biblical terms it's pride the answer is not to go on with your attack it's not to hatch some new scheme to take out your adversary the answer is very simple humble yourself Humble yourself. Entrust yourself to the one who's able to deal with all things righteously. Believe that God is near. Believe that He sees and that He's good and that He's able to answer and entrust yourself to Him. Just humble yourself. Now, James is going to expand all this for us in verses 7 through 12, but let me just read to you 7 through 10, because I really can't say it any better than what he says it. He, he, he launches from, from this verse 6 God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. See, you don't need to exalt yourself. You don't need to lift yourself up. You don't need to put yourself forward, and you don't need to propose all of your... uh, schemes, give all of your explanations, have everyone bow down to all of your opinions and serve your gods. You don't need all that. Humble yourself before God and He will take care of the rest. He will exalt you. Until you do that, God resists the prowl. Until you do that, God has set Himself against you. The people you're fighting are not the people that you think you're fighting. You might think it's your spouse. You might think it's your coworker, But I'm here to tell you, it's God you're fighting. He's resisting you. You've made yourself an enemy of him. Your prayers have been polluted by your own selfish ambition. And what you need to do is you need to go back to the Lord. You need to confess your self-centeredness. And you need to pray, Lord, your will be done. Your will be done. You do with this situation, you do with that person, whatever you deem you need to do. But I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to quarrel. I'm not going to appeal to the wisdom from below. I'm just going to trust the situation to your hands. You can take care of it. Humble yourself. Guess what? He gives more grace. God is gracious to the humble God is gracious to the humble maybe it's been a while since you tried to believe that maybe it's been a while since you rested in that truth but be reminded today you humble yourself before God and let him do with, him, with you however he wants to do with you and your problems which seem insurmountable right now are not too big for God They're not too big for God. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. If you're here today and and you have so many problems, you came today and you were so consumed with your problems, maybe not even ready for what you heard today, but what you heard today is the answer. What you heard today is that there's a God who's gracious merciful and forgiving you have you have buried yourself into so much distress because of your own sin but god forgives any kind of anger and wrath that he might have had against you he poured it out on his son jesus christ on the cross christ took the punishment for your sins so that you can escape all of the consequences of it and today if you'll confess your sins and repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, God will forgive you of your sins and He'll save you. He'll cleanse you and make you righteous and you'll have peace. Father, we're so grateful today for this gospel. So thankful for the truth of Your love and Your goodness to us which has been brought to us by our Savior. He is everything we need. I pray, Father, that you'd help to give us that kind of contentment that we, we bypass so often as we become so inundated by the ways of the world. We don't want to be friends with the world and be enemies with you. You are our hope. You are our peace. We love you, Lord, and you're all, all that we need. So, Lord, we're yours Our life, our situation is yours. You do with it as you will. And we'll follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.